Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Ancestry.com.au. You've seen the faded sepia photograph, but how tall was your great-grandfather? How much did he weigh? What colour were his eyes? And did he really have a mermaid tattoo? These are the sort of details that can turn a family tree into a colourful and compelling personal history. And they're the sort of details you can sometimes discover in military and or police records at Ancestry.com.au. I use Ancestry constantly to research and write this podcast, and it could help you piece your past together too. For more information, go to Ancestry.com.au because there could be more to your story. Forgotten Australia is written and produced by me, Michael Adams, in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. I pay my respect to Aboriginal elders past and present. It's around 8 o'clock on the crisp autumn morning of Sunday the 12th of April 1863 and the little town of Mansfield in the foothills of the Victorian Alps is still waking up. At the village's police station, Mounted Constable John Bruce and Mounted Constable John Duggan are going about their business when they're hailed by a visitor arriving on horseback. It's David Gedge the 19-year-old lad who works as a groom at the Bevan and Company coach stables down at Devil's River, and who boards at the grog shanty operated by Bob Scott and his pretty young wife Betsy. David's in a state of nervous excitement. He blurts it out. Bob Scott is shot. Constable Bruce says, what? Bob Scott? Constable Bruce has met the man a few times, knows that he doesn't just serve grog, but he's partial to the stuff himself. A man like that might very well do himself a mischief if he was fool enough to handle a gun while in his cups. But it's not like that, David Gedge tells them. Julian Cross, he says, the coloured man who works as a cook at the shanty, he's the one who shot Bob. Shot him dead. The constables, they have to get down there and take Julian Cross in charge. Arrest the man before he does something else. Sunday morning has suddenly taken on a different complexion for the Mansfield police. They grab their horses, make sure their own guns are in order, and, with David Gedge, they ride for Devil's River. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia. You're listening to Murder at Devil's River, Part 2. I'm innocent, but I know I'll hang. While David Gedge was relaying the news of the murder, Back at Devil's River, Elias Ellis was doing his bit by keeping an eye on Julian Cross. Mr Ellis and his wife Ellen had been in their dray outside the shanty when the shot was fired around midnight last night. David had come to Mr Ellis within seconds, claiming that Bob Scott had shot himself. It was only hours later that young David had told the truth that Julian had killed Bob. 
Watching the shanty, Mr. Ellis observed Julian and the newly widowed Betsy Scott pottering about. Julian Cross, the murderer, wasn't panicking or trying to flee. Around seven or eight, Mr. Ellis went into the hut. Betsy asked, could he do her a favour? She was too upset to go into the bedroom where Bob lay dead in the bed. But her sons, John, about seven, and Tom, about four, were asleep in the room. Could Mr. Ellis please go and get them? Could he also collect some of their clothes and some of hers? Mr. Ellis did as he was asked. But while he was in the bedroom, he noticed that the double-barreled pistol on the bed had been moved. Last night, moments after the gunshot, it had been near the dead man's hand, but pointing away from his head. Now it pointed more towards Bob, as if someone had shifted it to make it look more like a suicide weapon. It wasn't lost on Mr. Ellis that David Gedge had gone into the room last night after the supposed suicide, but before he'd told the truth about Julian Cross. David had been doing something in there, moving something. But what? And why? On the ride from Mansfield to Devil's River, David Gedge told the mounted constables what had happened last night. Around 11.30, he said, he'd been sitting by the kitchen fire and looking in through the bedroom doorway on poor Bob Scott, who was in his bed and suffering the delirium tremens. Julian Cross had come into the kitchen and grabbed the long gun he used for hunting. He'd had a pistol in his other hand. Julian had then gone into the bedroom and a few seconds later, there'd been the shot. Julian had come out and he'd pointed a pistol at David. Julian said he would shoot David dead, right there, right then, unless he got on his knees and swore by God that he would never tell what had just happened. Julian said David had to go out and he had to tell Mr. Ellis that Bob Scott had shot himself. David, fearing for his life, got on his knees and he swore his silence. Julian making these threats and David taking the unholy oath, this had taken a couple of minutes. Then David had gone out and he'd woken up Mr. Ellis in his dray. He'd told Mr. Ellis the sham suicide story. Only hours later, when Julian had finally gone to sleep, did David feel safe enough to return to Mr. Ellis and tell him the truth. Then David had gone for the police. Around half past ten that Sunday morning, David Gedge and the constables rode into Devil's River. Julian Cross didn't offer any resistance when Constable Bruce arrested him and put him in handcuffs. The officer warned Julian that he didn't have to say anything, but anything he said might be used against him. Julian replied, I'm innocent, but I know I'll hang for it. Constable Bruce searched Julian, but found nothing. Mr. Ellis was interviewed, and he gave his version of events leading up to and after the shooting. He told of hearing the gunshot, Betsy and David saying Bob had shot himself with a pistol, his doubts about this, and then David coming to him later with a story about Julian. Mr. Ellis also told them that the pistol on the bed appeared to have been moved. The police then went into the hut with Julian and went into the bedroom. On the bed rested a chamber pot containing vomit, the remains of Bob's last struggle with the delirium tremens that he thought would kill him. But death had been far swifter. The bullet had blown a hole in the back of his head, made its way through his skull, and pushed his right eye almost out of its socket before exiting the right temple. Constable Duggan said of the scene, 
This is a fearful occurrence. Julian Cross said, I did not shoot him. But David had come into the room and he said, Yes, you did shoot him. Julian denied it. David reaffirmed his claim and added, I'll swear to it too. Julian raised his manacled hands and said, I have to thank you for this. David replied, Yes, it's my turn now. I'm not frightened of you. Despite what these men were saying, the police had to consider the possibility that Bob had shot himself with the pistol. Except now, it was gone. David pointed out the long gun in the kitchen. The constables examined it and it had every appearance of having recently been fired. They found the pistol in the kitchen too, placed on a table or, in another version, down by the door. In any case, it seemed highly unlikely the pistol was the murder weapon. The right barrel was rusty and it hadn't been fired for some time. The left barrel contained some powder and a fragment of a blasting cap. It also hadn't been fired recently. What it looked like was that the usable left barrel had been loaded with a ball and then it had been cleaned out, though not thoroughly. Constable Bruce decided what needed to be done. He would take Julian Cross to Mansfield lockup. He'd come back tomorrow with the necessary officials to hold an inquest. Constable Duggan would remain with the body until then. Constable Bruce loaded Julian onto a horse and they set out for Mansfield. Soon after they arrived, the little town was buzzing with the news of the murder. A reporter for the Wangaratta Dispatch had gotten wind of the story and began writing his report. What he knew at first was only that a coloured man had been arrested for Bob Scott's murder and that this coloured man was protesting his innocence. That might have been what the police told the reporter, or it might have been what the reporter gleaned from town gossips. The Constable Bruce would later say that Julian Cross had started speaking freely on the journey from Devil's River to Mansfield. He hadn't told everything then, but he had added to his story on the Monday. What Julian Cross had to say was astounding. Constable Bruce conveyed this information to his superior, Detective Constable James Edwards at Jamison. Urgent arrangements were made. On Monday, Detective Edwards and his offsider, Sergeant Moore, rode to Devil's River. When they reached the grog shanty, Detective Edwards interviewed Julian Cross for himself, Julian having been brought there in custody by Constable Bruce. Then Detective Edwards spoke at length with Mr. and Mrs. Ellis. Next, he saw Betsy Scott. Detective Edwards said, This is a sad affair. Tell me all you know about it. The young widow replied, I don't know, for I was outside, at the back of the chimney, when the shot was fired. Detective Edwards next interviewed David Gedge. What did he know? David told him the same thing he'd told Constable Bruce yesterday morning at Mansfield and then on the ride back to Devil's River. That day, in addition to the police, two other men had come to the grog shanty on official business. They were local magistrate Mr G. Govett and Dr Samuel Reynolds from Big River. In the shanty, Magistrate Mr Govett opened the inquiry into the death of Bob Scott and heard from witnesses. Betsy was sworn and of her husband Bob she said, quote, He had been ill the last fortnight and I have been sitting up with him every night. The cause of his illness was drink. I called in Mrs Ellis to sit up and relieve me. When I sat up, Gage and Cross, the blackfellow, were in the kitchen, joining the room where my husband lay. 
Betsy detailed her tiredness, quote, During the early part of Saturday evening, I lay down, leaving Mrs. Ellis with my husband. Mrs. Ellis went out, and Scott called for drink. I rose and gave it to him. Mrs. Ellis came in again, and we sat and waited till he went to sleep. Mrs. Ellis went out and said she would go and see where Mr. Ellis was. She was so long gone that I went to see if she had gone to bed. Betsy continued, I had not been out more than three minutes when I heard the report of firearms, one single shot. I came back to the kitchen door to see what had happened and saw nothing but smoke in the bedroom. Gedge passed me and he said he was going to call Ellis. I waited till Ellis came in. He went into the bedroom and when he came out, he told me Scott had shot himself. This is all I know about the affair. Detective Williams asked Betsy if she'd gone into the bedroom. She replied, I did not go in and see if he was shot. Cross was in the kitchen when Gedge rushed by me. There was always a pistol on the shelf within his reach. The prisoner was in our employ. Next, David Gedge was sworn. He said on Saturday night he'd gone into the kitchen. Mrs. Scott and Mrs. Ellis were then looking after Mr. Scott. David Gedge said he was there until around 11 when Mrs. Ellis went out to see her husband. Then Mrs. Scott had gone out to see where Mrs. Ellis had gotten to. About a minute after that, Julian Cross had come into the kitchen with a pistol in his hand and he'd collected the gun as he passed into the bedroom. Two seconds later, there'd been the blast. Quote, I got up and went to the bedroom door when prisoner covered me with the pistol and made me swear never to divulge but that Scott had shot himself. I had to do it. I had to swear by my God. The prisoner made me kneel down and swear. So David had gone out and called to Mr. Ellis in the dray and claimed that Bob had shot himself. This charade had continued. David going through the motions of waking Julian up and then agreeing Julian should be the one to go get the magistrate and then Julian saying it was too dark to catch a horse. It was only hours later that David felt he could risk revealing the truth. David told the inquiry, quote, When prisoner went to sleep before the fire, I then went out and caught the mayor and told Ellis what I had seen the prisoner do and to watch him while I went to Mansfield to tell the police. Detective Edwards asked where Mrs. Scott had been when the gunshot rang out and when Julian had David on his knees begging for his life. David said that Mrs. Scott at this time was at the back of the chimney, about 12 yards off. He said, I don't know if she could hear the conversation. Under further questioning, David said, quote, About three minutes elapsed between the time I had called Ellis and the time that he came in. Mr. Ellis began to give his evidence, saying he'd heard the shot around 12 or 1, but Detective Edwards had heard enough from Mr. Ellis in private. He could be recalled later in the inquiry. Next came Dr. Samuel Reynolds. He needed to give official medical evidence about Bob's death. Dr. Reynolds had experience with gunshot wounds. From the smoke and grains of powder that had been driven into the skin, he reckoned that the muzzle of the gun had been three or four yards from the back of Bob's head. In other words, at close range, but not point blank. The force of the blast had shattered all but one bone in Bob's head. The fragments had scrambled his brains as the bullet exploded out of the right temple. This pointed to a long gun fired at him, rather than a small pistol he'd used on himself. And of course, the bullet wound and Bob's position in the bedclothes was all wrong. In short, there was no way that he'd shot himself. 
Detective Edwards had everything he needed from the inquest as it stood. Based on the evidence given and on other information, which was Julian Cross's secret confession, he arrested David Gedge and Betsy Scott and charged them as accessories to the murder of Bob Scott. What Detective Edwards had heard from Julian Cross was this. Julian had been in bed on Saturday night when David had come to him with a pistol. The lad said he'd tried to shoot Bob with it, but it wouldn't go off. David said Julian needed to get up and he needed to shoot Bob. Julian had replied, Oh no, perhaps the missus would not want me to shoot the master. David had said, Yes, get up and see her. Julian had gone into the kitchen. There, he'd asked Betsy, Is this what you want? Betsy had said yes. She'd given him a glass of brandy to steady his nerves. Julian had taken up the gun that he used for hunting. The weapon's barrel had already been loaded with shot for possums. He couldn't extract it with a rod, so he had to wash it out with boiling water. David had melted the shot in a frying pan. Then he'd poked his finger into the soft clay of the kitchen floor to create a makeshift bullet mould, and he'd poured in the molten metal. Julian had then loaded the gun with powder and with this new bullet that was also wadded with cloth. Julian had gone into the bedroom, and he'd shot his boss in the back of his head. After blowing Bob's brains out, Julian walked back into the kitchen. Betsy wasn't there. David now had his role to play. He ran out to Mr. Ellis at his dray and said in a panic, Bob has shot himself. While David was doing this, Julian went back to bed and feigned sleep. Detective Edwards had heard versions of the story from David Gedge, Julian Cross, Betsy Scott and Mr. and Mrs. Ellis. One contradiction in particular suggested that Julian Cross was telling something closer to the truth than what had come from the mouth of David Gedge. This was, Mr. and Mrs. Ellis both said that David had come to the dray instantly after the shot. By instantly, they explained, they meant just a matter of seconds. Yet David had claimed that after the shot, he'd spent a couple of minutes on his knees being menaced by the pistol-toting murderer, Julian Cross. Yet Mr. and Mrs. Ellis said they hadn't heard any voices in the moments before David arrived at the dray. Detective Edwards didn't tell Betsy and David what Julian Cross had confessed to doing. Nor was he going to give his suspects the chance to cook up any corrections to contradictions before they were committed for trial. So he ordered them split up. Sergeant Moore took Betsy to Mansfield and Detective Edwards escorted David to Jamison. Soon after they rode away from the shanty, David said, Well, I can prove that I did not shoot Bob. Detective Edwards replied coolly, I have not charged you with it. Veteran police know that a suspect will often fill any silence that's allowed to form. And that's what appeared to happen as they clip-clopped their way along the road to Jamison. Feeling the need to unburden his conscience, David Gedge made a full confession and he promised that he'd repeat everything he'd said for the magistrate. On the Saturday night, David told the detective, after Mr. and Mrs. Ellis had gone back to the dray, Bob had started scolding Betsy. Scolding was the word that would be contained in the police report. Likely this was supposed to mean that Bob was insulting his young wife as he demanded more booze. Given everything she'd done for him, 
was doing for him, Bob was behaving very badly. But of course, the man also wasn't in his right mind. In any case, Julian had called out from his room asking what was going on. David said to the detective, quote, I told him Bob was scolding the missus. Julian then came into the kitchen, took up a gun that was there, drew out a charge of shot and bits of lead, and gave it to me to make a ball. I put the lead into a frying pan and melted it over the fire. I then got some soft clay and Julian made a hole in it with his finger. I poured the lead into the hole and made the bullet. The bullet was large for the pistol, so I pared it down to fit and gave it to Julian. As for the pistol, it had a ball stuck in its left barrel. David had drawn it out and thrown it away. He thought he'd also gotten rid of the remnants of the cap and powder, but he hadn't. David went on. Julian then laid the pistol on Bob's bed and began to load the gun. He put a measure and a half full of powder into it. He then wrapped some calico around the ball and put it in the gun. David said Betsy had, during this time, been in another little room in the shanty. Now David went to her. I then told Mrs. Scott to go out for a while. She went through the kitchen where Julian Cross was. David told Detective Edwards, I went into the sleeping room to see if Bob was asleep. Bob wasn't, but he was stupid with drink. At least he wasn't looking at David. That might have been unnerving. Quote, I came out and Julian then went to the door of the room and shot Bob. He then ran out to his room and I ran to call Ellis and tell him that Bob had shot himself. When I went out, I pushed Mrs. Scott, who was standing beside the chimney, further back. In another version, quoted in the newspapers, David would say, I then went down and awoke Ellis. As I went down, I saw Mrs. Scott outside. Ellis then returned with me. This is the truth and all I have to say. This is the truth and all I have to say. In his confession, Julian hadn't really described his motive. He'd just been told to do it by Betsy and by David. David, meanwhile, said that Julian had just acted in a fit of anger, which didn't really explain why David had gone along with it. While Julian had directly implicated Betsy, David had not. David didn't say that she'd known what was going on or that she'd assisted in any way. As for her version, when Detective Edwards had asked Betsy what had happened, she had said and would continue to say, I know nothing about it. I was outside. I had gone to see if Mrs. Ellis had gone to bed as she had not bid me good night. Betsy maintained she was innocent of any knowledge of the murder, let alone that she'd been involved in any way in planning it. One thing that cast doubt on this was that Mr. Ellis had said Betsy initially told him she'd been in the kitchen having tea with David when they'd heard the shot. Of course, according to Julian and or David's confession, that could not be true. Further, Mr. Ellis had initially claimed that Betsy and David had said in unison that Bob had shot himself with the pistol. Betsy had, at least in Mr. Ellis's account, seemingly been party to the plot to make it seem like Bob had committed suicide. The inquiry into Bob Scott's death resumed on Saturday the 17th of April in the Mansfield Police Court, with all three prisoners brought before Magistrate Mr. Cogden and formally charged with murder. Detective Edwards successfully applied for their remand until Monday. On Monday, the 20th of April, they faced a full bench. More evidence was heard. 
Mr. Ellis told of his Rue hunting excursion with Julian on the Saturday afternoon before the shooting. Mr. Ellis said, quote, On our way, I said to him, That is a bad job, Bob Scott being ill. Julian had replied, Yes, but he will soon die. What was Julian talking about? Was it Bob's delirium tremens that was going to kill him? Or had Julian just inadvertently tipped his hand to the murder plot about to be enacted? Mr. Ellis also told the court that when Mrs. Ellis had come to bed in the dray that night, she said, quote, I think Mrs. Scott is behaving very bad to Scott in giving him so much grog, for I saw her give him a whole glass of brandy. Of course, Mrs. Ellis would later say that she'd actually been the one to give Bob the brandy, and it had apparently been a nobbler, a smaller amount than a full glass or a tumbler. Nevertheless, in this evidence, the imputation might be that Betsy had been trying to kill Bob first with booze, and when that had failed, she decided to enlist her two male friends. Mr. Ellis recalled, I said to my wife, that is enough to kill the man. She replied, she very soon will if she goes on that way. Mr. Ellis told the court that his wife had gone to sleep in the dray, but that he had remained awake. This was important because it meant he hadn't been startled into consciousness, but had a full awareness of what was happening from the moment he heard the gunshot. Crucially, Mr. Ellis repeated what he'd told Constable Bruce and then Detective Edwards, that David Gedge had been at his dray instantly after the shot. Mr. Ellis told of how he'd run from the dray without even putting on his pants. In the smoky bedroom, he'd seen Bob dead on the bed, gunshot wound in the back of his head, pistol atop the blankets at his right elbow. Quote, I came out of the bedroom and said to Mrs. Scott and Gedge, there will be an inquest over this and very likely something severe will follow. And here they were. Mr. Ellis told the court, quote, I said it was not possible for a man to shoot himself in the position Scott was lying. The moment I said this, Gedge went into the bedroom where Scott was lying and came out directly and whispered something I could not hear to Mrs. Scott. He then went and washed his hands. I then said, the man must have been shot. In this evidence, he didn't say that David had returned to the bedroom or that he'd heard anything moving around in there. Mr. Ellis would be a strong witness for the prosecution, though his testimony did vary in places. Mr. Ellis now told the court how he'd questioned Betsy and that he'd called her a foolish woman for leaving a pistol in reach of her delirious husband. This was a curious thing to say, given Mr. Ellis had also said he'd already decided that Bob Scott had not shot himself. Mr. Ellis intimated to the court that David Gedge and Betsy Scott had been intimate, telling of what he'd seen when he and Mrs. Ellis had stayed at Devil's River three days before the shooting. Quote, about six o'clock in the morning, I was feeding my horses and saw the prisoners Elizabeth Scott and David Gedge come out of the house and go into the coach stables together. They remained there about an hour. I called my wife's attention to it and said, that does not look well, does it? When Mrs. Ellis testified, it was in such rote fashion that even the Wangaratta dispatch was moved to say, quote, her evidence was almost word for word of that given by her husband. And when allowed to speak, Betsy said that Mrs. Ellis was simply corroborating Mr. Ellis's story. It was ironic that Mrs. Ellis should echo her husband's words so closely, given that Mr. Ellis had said that Betsy had done this with David. The examination of the witnesses took four hours, and court was adjourned until 11 o'clock on Friday. 
When court resumed, Mrs. Ellis added more damning detail. Quote, On Saturday, a few hours before the murder, I was talking to Mrs. Scott about her husband when she remarked that she would never have married him but for her mother. Was this motive for murder? Had Betsy Scott taken 10 years to reach the end of her tether and then enlisted two men to kill her husband? Or was she committing adultery with David Gedge and was this her motive? Mrs. Ellis told the court that, on Sunday, after Julian Cross had been taken away for murder, she'd gone into the shanty. Quote, In the front room, I saw Mrs. Scott and David Gedge, the prisoners, playing cards together. I was so disgusted that I went out and did not go in again until ordered to do so by the police. Mounted Constable Bruce gave evidence of attending the crime scene based on what David had told them about Julian Cross. Then he recounted what Julian Cross had said while in custody. This confession was rendered in both formal police speak and the broken English idiom then used to denote how a so-called coloured man might speak. The mixture of these two styles makes us wonder exactly what Julian Cross said and what was said for him by the police. The prisoner had supposedly said, quote, I'm going to tell you all about it. I want you to remember all I say. I was in bed on Saturday night when David Gedge came to me with a pistol and told me that he had fired it at Bob Scott, but that it would not go off. He told me to get up and take the gun and shoot Bob, saying, It is your turn now. I said, No, perhaps Mrs. No liked me to shoot Master. Gedge said, Oh yes, you get up and see her. Julian continued. I got up and came into the kitchen with Gedge. I asked, Mrs., you want me to shoot Bob? She said, Yes, you do it and gave me a glass of brandy. I took the gun and went into the room where Bob was lying and shot him in the head. Julian had walked out. Quote, I came out and found Mrs. Scott had left the kitchen. David Gedge went to call Ellis and I went to bed again. Julian had also told Constable Bruce how they'd made the bullet, and this was again rendered in broken English. Quote, Day before me shoot Bob, gun was loaded with shot. I drew the charge, then Davy Gedge took him shot and melt him in frying pan. Then he make a hole in the floor and make him bullet to shoot Bob. What Julian didn't say in this confession, at least as officially recorded by the police, was A. That he'd protested he didn't want to shoot Bob because the master had done nothing bad to him. B. That Betsy had made him drunk by giving him two tumblers of grog rather than one. C that he'd repeatedly had the gun pressed into his hand and had repeatedly refused before he'd finally become drunk enough to agree to commit murder, or D, that Betsy had previously asked him to buy laudanum, which was a tincture of opium and alcohol that she intended to use to kill Bob with an overdose, but he, Julian, hadn't been able to procure any. All of those colourful details would emerge later. For the moment, Detective Edwards told the court of the denials he'd heard at the scene from Betsy and from David, and what David had then confessed on the road back to Jamison. All the evidence heard, Betsy Scott, David Gedge and Julian Cross were ordered to stand their trial for the murder of Bob Scott at Beechworth during the next circuit court, which was when a Supreme Court justice would come up from Melbourne. Given how remote this part of the colony was, the train not reaching that far yet, the accused would remain in custody for six months. They'd be held in Beechworth Jail. The governor of this institution was John Buckley Castillo. 
Mr. Castillo was then moving up in the Victorian penal system, eventually to become governor of Melbourne Jail and the closest thing Ned Kelly had to a friend as he approached his own date with destiny on the 11th of the 11th, 1880. Betsy, David and Julian stood their trial on Friday the 23rd of October 1863 in Beechworth. The presiding judge was William Stahl, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. All three accused pleaded not guilty. Betsy's counsel was Mr George Milner-Stephen. Like Betsy, his life had been changed by the systematic colonisation theories and advocacy of Edward Gibbon Wakefield having been South Australia's third colonial secretary in 1838-1839. More recently, he'd been a Victorian parliamentarian, and he'd soon leave the law to become a hands-on spiritual healer in New South Wales. A Mr Bowman acted for David Gedge and a Mr Prendergast for Julian Cross. Twelve men, good and true, would decide the fate of the accused, women then not being allowed to serve on juries. If any or all of the accused were found guilty, they would automatically receive the sentence of death. Since 1842, when two Indigenous men had become the first people hanged in Victoria, the colony had embraced capital punishment, executing people at a far higher rate than New South Wales and Tasmania. Dozens and dozens of malefactors had gone to the gallows, most for the crime of murder. What they had in common? was they were all men. While execution was described as the law's extreme punishment, executing a woman was the most extreme end of the extreme, something to be avoided at almost all costs. Now, if Betsy Scott was found guilty, the Victorian government would face a dilemma. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. The newspapers of the time didn't provide up close personal descriptions of the trial. Yet one was found nearly 20 years later in, of all places, Canterbury in New Zealand. In that city's standard newspaper, a journalist wrote that in October of 1863, he'd just been appointed as the editor of the Ovens and Murray Advertiser. Thus, he was sitting in the courtroom that day. While at the time he'd only report the basic facts, he now recalled what he'd seen. It should be noted that this memoir, written two decades later, seemingly from memory, contained a lot of errors. Betsy Scott became Margaret Scott, and David Gedge became John George. Nevertheless, his recollections do perhaps give us the flavour of how Betsy was perceived. Quote, The female prisoner was a short, powerful-built, handsome young woman of about five and twenty, neatly dressed in deep mourning. She had a fair, clear complexion, rather a large quantity of nicely braided fair hair, an aquiline nose, and prominent large blue-grey eyes. The first impression suggested by her appearance was, what a fine-looking woman to occupy the felon's dock. The second, I should not like to have the woman as an enemy, or to be in her power. 
There was an expression of indomitable courage and cruelty in those large, prominent, steel-coloured eyes, such as I have seldom seen during my lifetime. All day long, she stood bold, upright, staring at the judge, as though she thought she could overawe him by her audacity. She would have made a magnificent Lady Macbeth on the stage. From this description and other commentary that would emerge after the trial, it's clear that Betsy was being judged as much on how she looked and acted and what this supposedly reflected about her inner state as she was on the evidence. The Crown's trial evidence, with minor exceptions, was the same as presented at the inquiry. What we've heard so far in this episode closely follows not only newspaper reports of the inquest and trial, but also the official handwritten transcripts found in the 1863 capital case file held by the Public Records Office of Victoria. Some of the differences in testimony, which I have previously alluded to, did make Mr. and Mrs. Ellis's evidence against Betsy seem a little less firm. Under questioning, Mr. Ellis did admit that it had been David Gedge who'd made the claim about Bob killing himself with the pistol that lay on the bed, and he couldn't swear that Betsy had said the same thing at exactly the same time, like he'd previously said, and which had made their story seem rehearsed. Mr. Ellis also couldn't be sure when David had whispered to Betsy, whether it was before or after he'd gone into the bedroom and seemingly moved something in there. Given Betsy's fate would depend on what she'd known or not known and when, such little details could be crucial. So too were her agreed actions in the hours before the murder. Mrs. Ellis told the court that Betsy had been caring for her husband and that she'd been glad for Mrs. Ellis's help. Mrs. Ellis admitted that she had given Bob the brandy at Betsy's request and that it had been a nobbler rather than a full tumbler. Mrs. Ellis again told of how she'd advised Betsy to go and see a doctor and get his approval for administering alcohol. But Betsy had said she couldn't leave the shanty because Bob was so jealous. She'd never have married Bob if not for her mother. But as Mrs. Ellis told the trial court, Betsy had said nothing disrespectful about her husband. But Mrs. Ellis did testify, like her husband, that Betsy and David had both claimed to have been in the kitchen when the shot was fired. Mrs. Ellis also said that Betsy had most definitely said that her husband had shot himself with a pistol. The newspapers covered the trial in detail. Unfortunately though, the specific wording of the defence arguments was not outlined in their coverage, and it's also not found in the capital case file. But from surrounding reports, it's possible to say that the separate counsel's arguments went something like this. Julian Cross claimed he'd shot Bob Scott but had been told to do so by David Gedge and Elizabeth Scott. She'd plied him with booze, he'd been drunk at the time. David Gedge argued he'd assisted Julian Scott in committing the dastardly deed. He'd not been influenced by drink, but by desire. Betsy had used her feminine wiles to convince him to murder her husband. Yet this wasn't something he'd said in his initial confession and he'd also publicly claim, or let it be claimed on his behalf, that he'd never had sex with Betsy. Betsy's defence was far simpler. She denied any involvement. She was wholly innocent. The men were implicating her to make themselves seem less guilty. With the Crown and defence arguments made, his honour summed up, clearly laying down for the jury what constituted the crime of murder. 
but he also asked the jury to separate the confessions of the prisoners. As The Age reported, quote, Whatever Cross said must not affect Gedge or Scott, so whatever Gedge said must not affect either Cross or Scott, and whatever Scott said affected herself alone and not the others. It's very difficult to see how the jury could separate these statements in their minds, particularly in Betsy's case, where she was denying everything that she was being accused of by her co-accused. Chief Justice Stahl reviewed the evidence and the jury retired at 10 minutes to 5 in the afternoon. The 12 men deliberated for just 30 minutes. Less time than you've spent listening to this instalment. They filed back into Beechworth courtroom and the foreman announced they'd reached a verdict. Julian Cross was guilty of the murder of Bob Scott. David Gedge was guilty of the murder of Bob Scott. Elizabeth Scott was guilty of the murder of Bob Scott. Three guilty verdicts meant three death sentences. Now the question was, would Victoria really hang a woman? I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia. The third and final part of Murder at Devil's River will be released soon. But you can hear how the story ends and the questions that remain right now if you're an Apple or Patreon supporter. You can utilise a free trial to access the final instalment and as long as you cancel within the specified time frame, you won't pay a thing. Check out Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Forgotten Australia, Apple at apple.co forward slash Forgotten Australia and both of those links are in your show notes. Just a reminder, the next book club episode, which will be released in the new year, will be a conversation with David Hunt, the author of the wonderful Gert trilogy, which over the past decade has merged hilarity with Australian history. If you'd like to ask David a question that he'll answer in the show, send an email to ForgottenAustraliaPodcast at gmail.com or it's very easy to record a short audio message for David using the free online service SpeakPipe so go to speakpipe.com forward slash Forgotten Australia. Those links are also in your show notes. And as always, thanks for listening and thanks for supporting. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.